All right, well, hey, good morning, everybody. How are you guys doing? Good, okay. Hey, uh, my name is Prentice. For those uh, that are new, that I've never met, welcome. Um, I'm the lead pastor here. I get the privilege to uh, speak and to teach and just to walk alongside each person here. Uh, we didn't meet last week for a very good reason. Uh, many people from the church, uh, I don't know the exact number, 60, 70 or something like that, went up to Bellingham and either participated or cheered on uh, several teams from our church uh, for the Ski to Sea uh, weekend. Uh, will you raise your hand if you were there or if you competed or whatever it is? Awesome. Let's give them a round of applause for just doing it and, and accomplishing and having a good time. Uh, I wasn't there. I didn't compete. Um, but I was so happy to see all the photos and all the wonderful things that were happening. So uh, we continue this series uh, called Drawn to the Margins. And we're looking at different stories in the Bible where we see that Jesus is drawn to the margins. And as we've seen uh, several weeks, beginning from several weeks ago, even two weeks ago, we talked about in order for us to fully understand and see uh, and grasp a fuller image who God, uh, of who God is, it is important for us to go into the margins, meaning people, especially people, uh, that society or people or culture or the world has, has pushed off to the margins. And, and, and the good news and the bad news is that is where God is found. And so the bad news is then it is our responsibility to reach out and go and to walk alongside those that are deemed on the margins in order for us to see who God is. <clears throat> the bad news is, if we, again, if we don't do that, then we miss out on understanding the kingdom of God. And we'll continue that uh, in Mark chapter 10, verse 13 to 16. Uh, and the word of the Lord uh, says this, people were bringing little children to Jesus. For him to place his hands on them, uh, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant or upset. He was angry. He said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God, like a little child, will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them, and he blessed them. Let's pray as we continue. God, thank you so much that you teach us, you compel us, you, you, you push us into the margins. And oftentimes, many times, that's us. And so, God, may we find you there. May we find you May we seek you, may we be transformed by you each and every day. God, speak to us. May we learn from children. Because as your word says, your kingdom is found in them. And may we never forget that. God, we also come to you with, with heavy hearts as another tragic incident in Virginia Beach where tragically 12 lives were lost. And so, God, for me, I feel like I pray these prayers often. 
So God, would you enter into the mourning and the sorrow and the tragedy? Will you move and mobilize people to, to action that may change the trajectory of violence? God, may we be peacemakers. May we be people of prayer and good thoughts and people that want to do tangible and practical things to make this world better. In your name we pray. Amen and amen. So when I was thinking about uh, this, this passage and, and, and children, and particularly children of my friends, as I don't have any of my own, uh, I thought of a particular friend uh, who has a sweet, sweet, adorable little six-year-old. And, and many of us, we've been around little children where they're just so cute and so adorable. Uh, this one particularly uh, not only is cute and adorable and all those, uh, but so social. Uh, I remember every time I would come over, even to this day, every time I would come over, uh, she would want to spark up conversation with me. Uh, ask me about my day, ponder the meaning of life perhaps, uh, play games, do sing-alongs, and, and, and all these things. Uh, this person, the, the, this child was was so, what would I call it, extroverted. And myself as an introvert, I don't always get all you extroverts. I don't get it. I just, I feel like there's this big barrier between you and me. But hey, guess what? It's okay. We're all family. We'll get to know each other. We'll all hang out. But for this particular child, I just didn't understand how extroverted this person, this kid was. And I remember one time we went out Uh, During the holiday season, during Christmas season, we were downtown in the Westlake area where people were shopping. Uh, And these parents, these friends of mine who are parents, uh, they, this is their second one, they've relaxed a little bit. And again, I've never claimed to be a parent, but apparently, at least this was their situation, that their, their first kid, they were like, oh my gosh, where are you? Have the leash, you know, the leash with the, on the kid, and, and you know, you got to stay close. Uh, but for the, the second kid, it was like, I don't know, she's somewhere. I, who knows where she's at? She'll, she'll come back. I mean, it's, it's a very different paradigm in parenting. Uh, and, and I remember this one time we were downtown shopping, and, and this little six-year-old was going around saying hi to strangers. And, and I felt like I was freaking out more than these parents were freaking out. And I'm like, don't, don't you, do you see what's happening here? And as we were about to enter into a store, she, the, the little girl goes up and talks to a homeless man. And just sparks a conversation. I don't exactly know what they were talking about, but they were just having a conversation. Uh, and finally, we called her back because we we're going into the store. And this little girl, at the end of the conversation, gives this homeless man a hug. A hug and then runs back to the parents and myself when we go inside of the store. Now, at that moment, when I saw that, something special, something unique happened, especially to myself. And we've all seen this kind of characteristic and personality in children, whether you have children of your own, whether it's children of others. Perhaps you remember being a child and being so spunky and so, so outgoing and so, for lack of a better word, so innocent that nothing can harm you just to say hello and to hug and just to come up, with random, to come up to random strangers. And it was that kind of humility and that kind of, of love, this natural love that this child had was something that I envied. This six-year-old girl embodied something that I so deeply envied. 
again, an ultimate sense of humility. A sheer abandonment of any social construct or expectations. There was no conditions. There was no agenda. There was no false motives. Uh, This was a pure hello. It was a pure conversation. It was a pure hug. And they went on their way. Now, now hear me, I'm not suggesting that you should allow your kids to interact with strangers all the time, but there was a deeper message in what I saw that evening. Something that we've all seen, again, or been a part of. And, and the ironic part is it's these very qualities that we have seen that I saw that evening when we were going shopping, uh, these characteristics that you've seen in your own child, or maybe that was you, these are the very characteristics that shed light and illuminates what the kingdom of God looks like. And and so we get to this verse, or these verses about little children, uh, how these parents brought their children, or perhaps it was some kind of form of caretaker, uh, brought children to Jesus so that Jesus can bless them, so Jesus can heal them, or, or maybe just to meet Jesus this, at this point, uh, just a famous rabbi. We don't exactly know why these caretakers, these adults, would take these kids, uh, these children, to Jesus, but they did. And, and at the very moment that they arrived, it says that the disciples, in earlier chapters, what we realized is Peter, James, and John, saw what was happening and rebuked the children, probably even the parents. I can imagine, I can imagine, and maybe we've said this too, I can imagine these disciples, Peter, James, and John, uh, saying something like this, what are you doing here? Kids, well, what, what are you doing? Can't you see that we're busy? Kids, don't you know that we have important things to do? Kids, don't you know that this is grown-up time? Why don't you move along? Parents, why don't you take your kids and and just move out of the way? And ultimately, we see Jesus then being upset at that. But there's something that we have to understand about the ancient Near East during antiquity of their uh, projection and their understanding and, and their feelings towards children. And it says in the ancient Near East from the Old Testament, not just even in the Bible, but even just during that ancient Near Eastern time, children were often looked at as property. (laughs) They can be sold as slaves. They can be literally, quite literally, thrown out. They can be given away to a party that the family has debt towards. During the ancient Near, in this ancient Near Eastern time, children were seen oftentimes as property. And, and secondly, since children weren't able to, to contribute to the life and economic wellness of the family, they were seen as a lesser. In fact, the opposite was true. That they not only couldn't contribute to the wellness of the family and to build the family and to provide uh, well, really, income for the family. The opposite was actually true, that they were the ones that needed nourishment, that they were the ones that needed shelter. They were the ones that needed love. They were the ones that needed education. They were utterly, utterly, and desperately dependent on their parents, mom, dad, caretaker. 
And because of this, they weren't seen as full human beings, as full persons, uh, and they couldn't even worship or participate uh, in the religious ceremonies of the day, especially in the temple. And so a couple centuries later, uh, we have, or the, the Jewish community has uh, the bar mitzvah or the bat mitzvah, uh, literally bar or bat meaning son or daughter of the law, of the commandments. At age 13, uh, there's this ceremony where they, tr- where they believed that before the age of 13, f- regarding the bar mitzvah and bat mitzvah, was that they were utterly dependent on family, on adults, on mom and, and dad. They didn't comprehend the religious services. They didn't understand the Torah at that moment. But at 13 was what many Catholics would call the age of, of accountability. At 13, you are an adult now. At 13, especially during this time, you can get married now. At 13, you can work now. At 13, at this age, now you are responsible but, but before that, they were seen more as a liability than as love, as their children. They were seen as lesser of a human being. And, and the side notes and the subcontext of that is anytime we don't recognize somebody as a full person, no matter how old they are, adult, baby, the moment that we don't recognize someone as a full person as fully created in the image of God, uh, there becomes a layer of, of, of power, a structure of power. And this, by definition, is marginalization. This isn't to say that children and parents have equal sense of authority, but they have the equal sense of humanity. And that is what Jesus is talking about. That's what Jesus is addressing. The moment that we strip somebody away of their personhood, of their humanity, the moment that power enters into this dynamic where one is more powerful than the other, that is marginalization. And the three things that we'll talk about just real briefly is this. The kingdom of, first, the kingdom of God does not play by those rules. The kingdom of God does not play by the rules. And here's why this whole story in Mark chapter 10 is so subversive. So subversive. See, a chapter earlier, these disciples were arguing, chapter 9, these disciples were arguing, get this, about who was greater. And it doesn't say, like, greater at what. It probably wasn't greater baseball player or, or greater athlete or whatever. It was, it was they were arguing about who the greater uh, religious person was. Because back in the first century, that was everything. They were apparently arguing about who was more devoted, especially at this time, to Jesus, who, who followed the, the ceremonies to the T, who did all the right things, who said all the right things, who acted the right way. They were arguing about who was greater a greater disciple, a greater religious person. We find this in Mark chapter 9. It says, It came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the road? So they're traveling to, to Jerusalem. But they kept quiet because on their way they had argued about who was the greatest. Who was the greatest disciple? Who was a greater disciple than, than others? And I don't, it doesn't say how they were arguing or what they were arguing 
about. But, but perhaps the disciples were arguing that uh, in a way where they were exchanging their resumes, their achievements, their proximity to Jesus, all the wonderful things they had done for others, uh, and the list of, of all these things that they've sacrificed only to prove, only to elevate themselves as the greatest. And so it's interesting because as they're arguing about who the greatest religious person, the greatest person is between one another, Jesus subversively enters in and doesn't pick somebody, doesn't say, well, Peter, you're the best, or James, you're the best, actually responds with a seemingly random reply. And that's when this reply in chapter 10, verse 13 enters in. Jesus flips the script and says, well, the greatest is those who receive children. The ones that experience and see the kingdom of God are those that bring and invite and bless and do not hinder children. Now, now you have to understand why this is so radical, why this is so subversive. They were arguing about who the greatest was. And probably the way that they were arguing was that, again, they were spitting their statistics at one another, their resume, their achievements, all the great things that they've done for Jesus, for others, for life, like all these amazing things that they've done. And yet Jesus says, as a matter of fact, the only way that you become the greatest is actually becoming the lowest. It's not your resume that counts. It's not all these wonderful and spectacular and marvelous things that you have accomplished in life. It's actually being like these children. Can you imagine how radical that is? Because we just talked about children barely being called human beings. Children oftentimes sold into slavery. Children oftentimes can just be thrown away. Children who, uh, who can be pawned off as dead. These are the very people, the very human, the very characteristics, the very uh, essence of who and where the kingdom of God is found. And everything for the disciples becomes flipped upside down. This was a radical thing to say, a radical thing to do. Jesus completely flips the paradigm and says, if you want to be great, If you want to experience the kingdom of God, you must be like children. As he talks about children, it's this word paideon. Now, there are several different words for children in the original Greek language. There's young child, there's teenager, there's young man, young boy, young girl. Here, Paideon specifically means young child, oftentimes infant, oftentimes young slave. And so the idea was this. In order for you to become great, in order for you to experience and and realize the kingdom of God, you must be like children who are in very nature of who they are, completely and utterly helpless completely and utterly dependent on a caretaker, on their mom, on their dad, that can absolutely do nothing on their own. And that, and that is who experiences and knows and sees the kingdom of God. The helpless, the vulnerable, 
the utterly dependent. It's ironic because the very reason these children were marginalized, the very reason these children were marginalized by society was the precise reason that we get to see the kingdom of who God is. Now we see that this story is also sandwiched uh, between this argument of who the greatest is, then this conversation about children, uh, then later in the same chapter, uh, there's a story about a man who goes up to Jesus and says, how do you inherit the kingdom? How do I have eternal life? And Jesus' quick response is, well, easy. I mean, you got to sell everything. You got to sell everything. I mean, Jesus, this man goes, Jesus, how do I have eternal life? Again, spits out a resume. Uh, one including, Jesus, I didn't kill anybody. Like, I, I obeyed that commandment. And am I good? I didn't kill anybody. I did what you asked. Am I good? Am I, do I have eternal life? And goes on to other commandments. I've done this. I've done that. Again, probably the same argument that the disciples had on who the greatest is, on why that was. Uh, here comes another man, a story right after, saying, I've done all these things. Yet Jesus says, great, good for you. Now sell everything you have, give it to the poor. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And then it says, this man couldn't do it. Walked away sad because he couldn't let go. How ironic is this? Because the point is that God wants us, God wants you to be like children in humility, in reckless abandon, in utter dependence. The kingdom of God is not what you can achieve, what you've sought out. What you've done doesn't matter what your resume is. Even Paul in the New Testament says, if anybody has a reason to brag about how Christian I am, about how religious I am, it's me. He spits out all these things on his resume and he says, but I consider all of that poo-poo. I mean, literally, if you translate that word, it's a word that I would not say on stage. Maybe in other places, but I wouldn't say it here. Because what we have to realize is the kingdom of God is found when we become like children in humility and utter dependence. And my question for us this morning is, what do you depend on? What is it that gives you identity? What are the things that you have achieved that you can't let go that is actually blinding you from experiencing and seeing the kingdom of God? Because Jesus this morning is saying, let go of all that because the only way that you're going to experience the kingdom of God is by absolutely surrendering and being absolutely devoted and utterly dependent on me. Because the kingdom of God, secondly, is found in the unlikely. It is found in children. It is found, again, we've talked about in different places, the various people that have been marginalized. It is found in the immigrants. It is found in the refugees. It is found in the people of color. It is found in people that have been oppressed. The kingdom of God is found on the margins. It's found in the homeless. It's found in people that look differently than you. The kingdom of God is found in people that eat different foods than you. The kingdom of God is found in people that speak different languages than you. This is where the kingdom of God is found. Are you going there? Because the kingdom of God is found in the unlikely. And in this case, in our point in case, it's in children, the very children that were pushed off to the side as second-class citizens. And yet when we do that, we're pushing out the kingdom of God. 
I love what it says here. It says in verse 13, people were bringing little children to Jesus. The Greek word used here in bringing is the word prophero. When people bring things, it is prophero. A better translation of this word in this text would be bringing an offering, would be bringing a gift. So when these parents or these caretakers were bringing, bringing doesn't do enough justice. What it's actually saying is to Jesus, these parents were bringing a gift, an offering to Jesus. Remember uh, when Jesus was born that these, the, these magi, traditionally speaking, the three wise men, who knows if it's three, who even knows if it's men, uh, came and offered a gift of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. We hear about this story all the time during Christmas. It's the same word. This gift, profero, it's the same word. These parents understood in the midst of what culture and society might say is that the very people, the children, the young children, the young infant that they were bringing to Jesus, they were gifts. They were an offering. Do you see that? Do you see children as gifts? And let me just say this. You can fully do this. You can fully do this. See children as gifts, even if you don't have your own children. If you have your children, then you can most certainly do. For those of us without, which is myself included, We can also. This is the beautiful part of the Christian faith and the Christian church is that we, this is not just a platitude. We are a family. We are a family. We are a village that raises each other's kids. We walk alongside families. When we do baby dedications, that's not just to have this ceremony or have this ritual because if that's all it is, that is just offensive. That, That just does no good for us. What we're saying is we're committed to this family. I would give my life to the children that don't belong to me because we are a family. And the beautiful part of this Christian faith, this Christian church, is that we are all mothers, we're all fathers, we're all sisters, we're all brothers to children, even children that don't belong to us. I remember when I was in Rwanda, we're at a church service and there was little kids everywhere. And I loved it. It was beautiful. They were dancing. And they would just go to one adult, sit on their lap, and get hugged and get carried away. And, and all of a sudden, they would run off to another, and they would sit on their laps. I mean, this was happening everywhere. And, and I was saying, who, whose kids do these kids, who, who are the parents? Like, I see them just sitting on everybody's lap, hanging out with everybody. Who are their actual parents? And the response I got was, well, everybody's their parents. Everybody's their parents. And I just thought that was so beautiful. So are you seeking out to love children? Do you see them as a gift? If, if you do be a mentor, have you mentored anybody lately? Young people, have you sought out? I know you're not children or infants or babies, but, but have you sought out older folks, wiser folks that can guide you and help you? Have you volunteered in the children's ministry? And I don't say this as an advertisement, uh, but have you, have you volunteered in the children's area? And, and if you have, have you gone believing 
That it's not you just giving, although you are, but you're also receiving the kingdom of God from these children. That these children have something to offer us, and that is the kingdom of God. The example, the embodiment of utter humility, of utter dependence. And lastly, it says that the kingdom of God is not to be hindered. The kingdom of God is not to be hindered. In verse 14, it says, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, uh, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. The hinder is the word kolio, and it literally means to stand in the way, to, to block something. What are the ways that we stand in the way of our children, our young people, living out exactly the way God has called them? How many times have we been like these disciples, Peter, James, and John, to ignore the beauty, the humility, the lessons about God in our children? I say our children because they are our children. You encourage children or you stand in their way of their confidence. Do you give them room to think and to wrestle with ideas and to grow intellectually or do you just write it out for them? Do you spend time with them or do you see them getting in the way of your time? There's this uh, research by, it's called the Search Institute and many uh, sociologists and youth pastors uh, use this alike. They say that every young person, well, let me just show you this. They've done all years and years of research uh, around children uh, and their development. And, and they say this, that there's two things, that there's an external asset that they all have, an internal asset. And I'll start with the internal assets. They say internally, uh, they develop a commitment to learning. They, they develop positive values. They develop social competencies and positive identity. These are all internal values that they possess and that they have and develop as they grow. But what matters, some of the key factors in making this happen are actually the external assets. It's the questions of do they have support? Do they feel empowered? Do they have boundaries and expectations? Do they have con uh, constructive use of time? Now, depending on, what the depending on these external assets, these, this research concludes, is what gives note to what happens with the internal assets. So these external assets are very, very important. And just for our time and our sake, uh, time and tender purpose, this idea of support, the, the same research says that every child needs three adults outside of their home to love them. And not just to know their name, not just to see them on Sunday during Sunday school, or maybe it's a teacher, uh, just knowing them by name, but every child needs three adults to love them, to know about their quirks, to, to know their humor, to know their personality, to know their fears, to know their dreams. This is what healthy support looks like. And if these kids, these children can't find it in the church, I don't know where they will find it. And many times it's in places we don't want them to find it. In this age of technology and social media, this changes the landscape of relationships. And this is for adults alike. Could we be committed to supporting children 
not just because we have something to give to them, but actually there's a mutually benefit, beneficial relationship that's happening that we get to experience the kingdom of God. So do not hinder the children. Because the sad news is we are. We oftentimes we're hindering children. The CDC uh, in their latest 2016 report says that the leading cause of death between 10 to 24-year-olds after accidents and, and un, unintentional injuries like bike accidents, skateboarding accidents, car accidents, after that, the leading cause of death is suicide. And then after that, it's actually homicide. And then it's only after that where it becomes illnesses like cancer and so forth. Our kids, our young adults, our youth, they're being hindered. And so my plea to you and to myself and us as a church is can we provide at least the support and love that these kids deserve and it's not just because they're cute. It's not because, you know, we, you know, we want to do all the, all the right things for these children. Yes, that is all true. But also because we get to experience and know the kingdom of God through them, their humility, their utter and total abandonment of anything else and utter dependence. Can we learn from that? Because many of us, if I'm being honest, we need that. Will you let go of your resume? Will you let go of all the cool things that you've achieved? Yes, it's part of your life. Good for you. I'm proud of you. I'm proud of all the things that I've also accomplished. But that is not what identifies who you are. It's our relationship in Christ. It's our relationship with Jesus who, 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 who lived, who taught, who lived, who died, who resurrected on our behalf. That is what, is our, what our identity is about and that only. And who better to teach us than children? Than children. Whether it's yours, whether it's the person next to you, whether it's your neighbor, whether it's the people down your street, these are our children. May we love them. May we learn from them. May we be transformed May we be reconnected in knowing and assuring our identity is fully in Christ alone by our love for the children as Jesus has. So I'm going to invite the worship team back up. And my response, our response as a church is easy. And it's this. We're going to receive communion because on the day that Jesus, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he said to his disciples, take this in remembrance of me. This is my body that was broken for you. And then he says, take this cup. This is my blood that was shed for you. Do it in remembrance of me. Receive this cup. Receive new life. Receive the kingdom of God and receive it with children by a children, receive it from a child. So I'm going to invite our communion servers up. Right now, you're welcome to come forward. May, you, may all of us, may we receive it.
total abandonment, with total humility, knowing that we receive the kingdom of God by, with, and from children as Jesus declares. Let me pray. We'll continue in worship and come up as you feel called and ready. God, thank you so much that you love us, that you care for us, that you teach us in what society would deem as the most unlikeliest of people. This morning we receive the kingdom through children whom you love, and we love them the same and we learn from them. May we not hinder them. In your name we pray. Amen. Come and come and receive when you're ready. Receive when you're ready. Receive when you're ready. Receive when you're ready. Receive when you're ready.